Author Natalie Nahai guests the Futurist podcast hosted by Futurist Trond Arne Unheim. In this conversation, uh, we discuss her new book, Business Unusual, Values, Uncertainty, and the Psychology of Brand Resilience, which is about consumer trends and digital interactions. We also get into whether art still has transformative powers. Futurized goes beneath the trends to track the underlying forces of disruption in tech, policy, business models, social dynamics, and the environment. Natalie, how are you? I'm very well. I'm very happy to be speaking with you today. How are you doing? I am doing great. And uh, you know you know this because I just said it, but I've been listening to your music because, you know, we're talking about transformation here. And in principle, I guess we're talking about your fantastic new book, which uh, I've read and, and, and your business unusual. Um, but you are, you are a web psychologist, you're a speaker, obviously, an author of several books, Webs of Influence was uh, an earlier work of yours. But what really caught uh, my attention was our earlier sort of prep conversation that got much more deeply into art. And I realized that we share this joy of of music. Mm. You were a violinist by training. So that's fantastic. (laughs) Uh, And you currently live in Barcelona and and you almost completed four years of training at the Barcelona Academy of Art. So I think there's a lot to pick up on here. And then there's a big thread that I hope we can get to on, on true happiness. Oh, that's a big question, isn't it? <laughs> yes. So if all of this works, we're talking about transformation, but from the angle of transformation through kind of bringing in uh, artistic sensibility, which is something you seem to have done throughout your career. And, and with that, um, I, I am, have missed a lot of things in, in your life. You're also obviously a consultant and you, you, you uh, consult on consumer behavior for a lot of companies. Mm-hmm. How did I do when it comes to describing your your journey? Because one of the things I guess I really forgot was your background. Uh, you have a multicultural background too, and, yeah. <laughs> and that was one of the fascinating things with the the singing. Because the the song I first heard on the, on the internet there was uh, La Bohème, so you were singing in French, mm-hmm. which uh, led me to understand that your mom is uh, Iranian, right? Or yes, you have done fr- Iranian good French. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so you're a quarter French and a quarter Belgian. On my mom's side, yes. That's what you um, said in an earlier interview. Yes, you can so, correct it now. No, no, that's right. I always have to redo the maths. Isn't that bad that I don't know off the cuff? So my mom is half French and Belgian. So quarter French, quarter Belgian. She's half Iranian. She was born in Tehran. And my father has a very mixed ancestral line. So he was born in Gibraltar. But we have Scottish ancestry. I recently discovered from him, he's been doing our um, family tree, that I also have Catalan ancestry, which is great because I'm living in Catalonia. Uh, we also have Belgian and Italian on my dad's side. So it's, it's, it's basically pick and mix, <laughs> basically Europe and a bit of the Middle East. So, um, yeah, but you've also got a rich background, no? I just do very many things. <laughs> We're not even going into the cultural ancestral aspect of it. Well, look, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I did do one of these uh, genetic tests, and yes, mm. it's, it it is more mixed and, and interesting than I even even thought. But um, I'm a Viking at heart, though. Huh. I like that. That's so good that you can actually say I'm a Viking at heart. I'm more of a mutt, <laughs> which doesn't sound that sassy. <laughs> <laughs> 
Oh no, that's a bit. Weird. But art was your first love. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it was. And you keep returning to it. Well, so it's been it's been a long while. Um, it was a thing that I loved from the very beginning, and um, I think it was a, a means. I remember my parents proudly talk about this story of one time they they told me off. I was raised in a fairly strict household, and I think they would agree with that. And um, and I was quite a vivacious child. And I think one time I got told off quite badly. <laughs> and I remember going up to my room and then drawing this female police officer with a truncheon, like angrily scolding my dad that I made much smaller. It's kind of like, you know, expression of dominance and outrage. And, and my dad, you know, and I showed it to him afterwards. I thought I was making a really bold statement here. And he just found it brilliant. He kind of smiled. He's like, this is actually really good. And of course, the whole situation diffused. But um, it was a way to just, I don't know, experience joy. And I think for a long while, that hasn't been my focus. I kind of ended up moving into music. And that was quite a, a roller coaster ride. And then it's it's only after finishing the second edition of Webs of Influence that I thought, right, I'm really burnt out. I'm going to do something for three months. Um, and I came to Barcelona following a short art course I'd done here over a summer of a week. And just decided I'd do a term and then loved it and just ended up accidentally moving countries and staying and finishing the art course. So, um, yeah, these things have a funny way of playing back in. So, so taking this sort of a little, uh, together then, um, let me ask you a, a really big question. Does the human experience, um, evolve through technology or does it stay the same? My instinctive reaction to say that it undoubtedly has to evolve. I think it amplifies both the beautiful and the grotesque aspects of humanity. I think it um, it holds a mirror in some ways and kind of if we don't figure out how to relate with more conscious intention to the systems that have been designed with the intention of maximize, maximizing engagement, then it has the potential to really amplify some of our worst tendencies. So I think it is an invitation to step up and reckon with the shadow sides of who we are and to choose differently and choose better. Um, of course, on the positive side, and it's, it's an extraordinary gift to be able to have this conversation with you. I would not be able to meet you in person with the lockdowns as they are now. Like this conversation would never have had a chance to happen. And so there's an extraordinary richness and possibility and creativity. You know, if you think about the early days of the internet and what it potentially promised to be, there was an extraordinary sense of hope and optimism. And it's something which I think obviously now has become quite stultified, but when people talk about the metaverse and the possibility of creating something that's perhaps a bit richer and interactive, I sense a similar kind of optimism, perhaps maybe a more weathered optimism in terms of what we could create there, but it's only going to be the best version of ourselves if we attend to it in a conscious way. So let's see. I mean, yeah, it has a, a great potential. I'm fascinated by the way you actually introduce uh, consumer behavior, uh, given that I must uh, imagine that most of your clients are, you know, they're corporates. So they are actually trying to understand and evade some of the, some of the challenges that do occur, you know, in terms of understanding, uh, this consumer that ch keep changing. But on the other hand, you're very conscious about taking and respecting the individual consumer and mm -hmm. you're, you're worried sort of on the consumer side as well. How does that 
message play with with the people who employ you. So, in other words, persuasive tech right is keeps getting better and better, and yeah. presumably part of why you are engaged with these clients is because you're good at describing what's happening in the consumer world. So you you have an innate understanding of some of these technological patterns, right? So they, they're hiring you partly as a persuader or, yeah. or to help them get better at that. Yeah, and that's how you get in the front door, right? <laughs> right. So, but once you get in the front door, you talk a lot about respecting these consumers. Yeah, and I think... I think one of the interesting things, for me at least, that I, that I find interesting about all of this is that we talk about consumers as if it's some, always someone else or users as if it's someone else. Consumption is something that we do. It's not who we are. And so when we use this language and when you know I speak to businesses and people talk about the user or consumer, it's so easy to forget that we are those individuals. We all use technology. We all have to consume to live unless we're um, you know, putting that in a totally different frame where we're not connected with technology and we're doing some self-sustaining type of consumption, which is more generative. But by and large, when we're thinking about consumers and users, we're designing systems, as are these organizations, that will shift how technology is developed and therefore also shift our experience of interacting with these things. And so for me, it's a really obvious and fundamental question, which is, how do you use these behavioral principles to better understand and meet the needs of people while also giving them the autonomy to make their own um, decisions and have their own agency respected? And I think finally, finally now, people are starting to think about this more. You know, you've got things like the thoughtful marketing movement, which is giving people the power to choose which marketing messages to opt in for and opt out for. Or if we're thinking about you know, the desire not to be tracked, you can use programs like Ghostery or Adblocker uh, increasingly to give yourself a more private experience or DuckDuckGo. Um, so we're seeing that there's there's more of an awareness of our desire to have our uh, sovereignty, our intellectual or decision-making sovereignty respected. And at the same time as that, there's this huge pushback with all these social channels driving people to end up in narrower and narrower, tighter bands of behavior based on past behaviors that then reduces your your scope of encountering new and other possibilities. So there's, there's a really interesting tug of war happening, um, but I would like to be on the right side of that. And I think you can use behavioral sciences to educate and empower and do it in a way that is respectful. Um, yeah, that's, that's my feeling on it. Yeah, well, uh, let's talk about algorithmic targeting for a moment. I mean, it is interesting. You know, the early, earlier algorithms were generally benign, you know, I, I, the proverbial one being, I guess, the Amazon book recommender. It felt nice that, you know, yeah. I bought this one book and then suddenly I got 10 pretty decent book suggestions. So at that point, you know, decades ago, that, that felt okay. Yeah. But then it sort of escalated from there. Yeah. And then even those same book recommendations started getting somewhat annoying because, for example, you bought that book on another platform and there was very little ways that you could inform this uh, dominant platform that, yes, <laughs> there is an <laughs> other outlet and I bought it there. So now please don't send me that thing again. I, I actually own it. And anyway, there's the algorithms, as advanced as they become, they kind of box us in, as you as you pointed out. Um, how is there a way out of that? Like, what is a conscious use of these kinds of targeting algorithms? So when you're advising your clients who undoubtedly either have their own algorithms or they use platforms 
social media platforms for targeting where those algorithms are actively at use. And in order to even spend your money wisely, whether you're marketing your product or whatever, you are constantly trying to use those algorithms to, to you know, so you get money, you know, the best out of your dime when you're spending money on advertising. So what alternate message is possible here? That's a really big question. I mean, I think it's tricky because if you're if you're an organization that is using algorithms to serve relevant content to people based on their past choices, then, you know, a lot of these algorithms, they're kind of black boxes. So it's not the organization itself per se that has access to the information to be able to change it. So we're talking about, you know, platforms that are uh, behind the walls of Google or Amazon. Um, and so I think it's it's a difficult one to have because then actually, if we're going to answer that question, we move into the realm of responsibility and transparency and accountability. So who's responsible for the, the experience of the individual? Who's responsible for making sure that they're getting the kind of experience that they want, they're getting enough choice? Who's then accountable for forcing people or coercing people um, generally without consent, but typically even worse, without their knowledge down specific rabbit holes. And is there any transparency about what you're being served and why? Well, not really. You know, the GDPR tried to make it possible for people to request data that companies had on them. And classically, it's been extremely difficult to actually get proper answers on what companies have. And when you get the answers, it's a massive data dump. So it's kind of, you know, it's, it's tricky because we need to have a system in which there is... And I don't know how we how we design for this, but where there is a certain amount of tailoring and bespoke experience that feels good for the individual. So being able to set that bandwidth, if you like, but also having the possibility for spontaneity, novelty, change, serendipity, so that we get that rich, nuanced stimulation that we get normally in real life when we bump into people or pick up an article that we would never have necessarily selected from my usual lot. So I don't know what the answer is. I think it has to be a challenging to the big players and maybe a smaller player will come up with an ingenious solution to how to start to address this problem. But I don't know as yet what answers there might be. Well, you're pointing to uh, what the, you know, the European regulators try to do. And it's, it's hard to be a regulator these days, mm. I think, because, yeah. you know, well, it, it's... Uh, it's a moving target. Um, and even if you create some sort of possibility of awareness, I guess you're making a lot of assumptions on, on, on the part of the consumer, right? You and I are, even though we might be literate and aware, we're also very, very busy. I mean, to, to <laughs> click through like these permissions and like, I just want to get to this article and now I have to like accept all cookies. But if you say no, then you're missing, you know, you're undoubtedly missing something. So yeah. it's not so easy is what I'm, uh, I guess what I'm saying. No. Um, so we're, we're in a territory here with, with these consumer technologies that are fairly uncertain, both for the consumer and for the businesses. Mm -hmm. What, what are some of the advice, uh, that you've been giving to businesses that are trying to deal with this, uh, and, and become more resilient businesses that are, both able to kind of capitalize on some of these changes, but also are more aware of, of what their uh, choices could, could mean, you know, in terms of negative fallout. Mm. So I think there's a few key things that are useful to point out. So one of them is the kind of the acceleration of existing trends that we've seen in consumer behaviors and in preferences and priorities um, in many parts of the world. So if you're thinking about 
looking at it through a generational lens. And there are some macro trends that we can point towards, even though there's individual difference within these, these cohorts, is that younger generations are much more interested in sustainability, more interested in um, social justice, climate justice. Many younger folks are uh, willing to take a pay cut for a brand or an organization that they feel align with their values. So there's this kind of desire for a greater intrinsic uh, motivation. You know, they want to get their sense of purpose and meaning, not just in their private lines, lives, but also from work. So I think understanding that these younger cohorts are not necessarily driven to quite the same extent by the security, quote unquote, of the corner office or the big car or the promotion. Um, they're more concerned with actually having a world to live in so that they can have any of these things, which may be more out of reach for them than previous generations, if we can understand that they're looking for purpose, meaning, and more uh, a meeting of their more deep-seated needs, then that means we need to relate to them in a different way. And also, you know, it's not just these younger generations that are forging ahead with these trends. They're maybe making it more socially discussable, acceptable, and expected that these needs could be met by the brands we interact with, buy from, work for. And that gives permission to the rest of us to also demand those things. Well, I, I'm glad you pointed that out because some of the generational marketing approaches, they frustrate me so much because yeah. one, you know, everybody ages. So, you know, you may be right. thought of as being in some one demographic cohort, but even ourselves, we, we do evolve. And then, you know, we do uh, perhaps moving to uh, to uh, having other concerns, like you, you, right. you have a family and you have other concerns. Um, so it's, I'm glad to hear that there could be positive, uh, you know, fallout also for, for older employees, for example, who then Absolutely. now can, can be more emotionally, I guess, engaged in the workplace and express these things and, and maybe get a larger type of, of contentment and dare I say, sort of happiness. Mm -hmm. I wanted to chat a, a little bit about something. It's uh, this term that you have picked up from social psychology and um, I'm probably going to mispronounce it, but eudaimonic engagement with the world. It's a term for Carol Riff. She's a social psychologist at the U Wisconsin Madison. Mm -hmm. um, and she's talking about achieving a sensual connection to life and nature. Mm. Yes. And as a futurist, and you know, what, what, what do you think of that? And why I is it? Because you, you write about it. <laughs> what does that mean to you? So I think, I mean, there's so many different ways to, to enter into this, but I think the sensual connection to life and to nature and the vitality and eros, and I don't just mean sexual eros, I mean the sense of aliveness that we get, this vibrancy of life. This connection is something which I think we all strive for. And with a more materialist uh, mindset, we're taught we can get satisfaction for through the consumption of material things. And maybe that's true on the sort of short-term scale but when we're talking about deeper more satisfying connection so we're talking about things like physical contact with people that we uh, love and care about we're talking about nature connectedness um, a sense of feeling connected with something larger than ourselves feeling belonging and a greater sense of purpose and integrity throughout the course of our lives that has to come from something which kind of makes part of the fabric of our day-to-day -day rhythm so whether that's locating yourself um i know some eco psychologists talk about locating yourself with a sit spot in your local area if that's under a tree in a city or something and you frequent that specific sit spot during the seasons you get to see how things change around you that for instance would be a good example of a central connection with um, the wider world the web of life and from the research that 
you know, is coming out of the, the world of psychedelic research, out of nature connectedness research, we know that it has so many benefits for addressing things like mental ill health, feelings of isolation, anxiety, depression, a lot of the things that now we're seeing in the aftermath of the early lockdowns and um, isolation of the pandemic. So, yeah, I think it's a very, very interesting and exciting topic to to bring into conversation because we could all benefit from exploring it. But it's it's also contradictory or it, it is like it's hard to swallow for someone who is so bought into technology as a virtualizing force. So mm. I, I have cared about these these issues for a long time. Um, and I have studied how technologists and companies, you know, get so swayed by the rhetoric, which we now all know about because we have had this physical isolation. Mm. So yes, technology does enable us, you and I, to have this conversation in a fairly deep manner virtually because we have really good audio and we have some decent video quality and it's a connection that's you know at least luckily for now quite stable <laughs> right so there are some very good things there yes, yes but even this conversation that we're having right now it's not eudaimonic in the sense that it has a connection to a physical reality like the physical reality is where i am physically right now and the technologies we're using to achieve it but you and i are not uh, in the same room, right? Yeah. So it is paradoxical that it seems still true <laughs> that many of these very authentic types of experiences, whether it is in the workplace or it is connecting with nature or in, indeed in some of the stuff that I do now, which is with working with industry that mm -hmm. creates physical things, hardware and, you know, mm. shop floors and factories and things, even though there are a lot of changes right now, this sort of authentic engagement with physical material things or nature or people, so whether they're biological or, or sort of like artificially created, mm. there is something very real and um, pleasurable in this mm very, very deep sense that yeah. seems still, even with metaverse and internet and mm. consumer targeting through algorithms that sometimes help us out. Yeah, so just just speak to that. Where are we headed with that? Because there, there are these two contradictory movements mm. that, you know, mo the move towards further virtualization and the move towards taking in the physical as something real and and you're engaged in art and a lot of that <laughs> has to do with your painting right you're going back to realist art mm. so so where is this going then i think i mean it seems to me that with a lot of the stuff that we try to do with technology it's it's to meet or gratify certain needs that we have and so if we think about vr and ar and we think about haptic cues so if you're um, you know, playing an AR game or a VR game where you've got, um, you know, you're, you're doing a Formula One race and you've got the wheel in front of you, a physical wheel, and you're getting the haptic cue of it vibrating every time you, I don't know, take a corner too hard or something like this. There, there does seem to be a desire within the tech world to merge the two. So the sensual, the physical, the haptic. Um, but of course, the technology required to fool the senses or to replicate sensations which are um, in the real world, quite complex and unpredictable, I would suggest, um, that requires a huge amount of evolution in technology. Or, you know, I'm thinking kind of from a more sci-fi Star Trek kind of uh, way of thinking of things, it requires physical intervention into the brain to stimulate 
the neurons in a particular pattern of activity that makes us feel as though we were touching something that's warm or uh, vibrating or you know cold or wet whatever it might be and so i think i think the further evolved technology becomes the more it will try to replicate the sensory environment so you know the olfactory environment the physical environment i don't know how far away we are from that um and honestly i for me it's kind of this sense of I like the unsterility, if that's even a word, of like of the physical environment. You know, if you think about programming everything in until such a time that you can create a program that basically mimics the messiness and chaotic aspects of reality, the unpredictable aspects of reality, unless you can create a program that is able to generate some version of that, it's not going to be convincing of the senses. I imagine we probably can make it sometime. Some AI will probably come up with it. Um, I don't know. I mean, I don't actually like the idea of living in a metaverse. I want to spend more time off my screen and in the forest. And uh, yeah, because there is something about being around other living beings that are not human, that's not my screen, that can actually relate in some form or other that you just don't get through technological interaction. At least, you know, can we ensoul machines? Maybe. Is that a soul experience or kind of like mind consciousness experience that's going to be gratifying ultimately to us? Who knows? Well, and that's how I wanted to talk about creativity, which is one of these terms that, I mean, maybe it doesn't even mean very much, but but you, you are very interested in this emotional engagement mm. of content and with content. And, you know, if we are to think about individuals like ourselves having a role in transforming society uh, creativity is just one of these notions that sort of uh, c comes up. And you told me earlier that we have gotten too accustomed to sort of passively interacting with our world. And and I guess, without putting words in your mouth, I guess technology in many ways can lead to a passive interaction or, or at least impoverished in a, in a like a sensory uh, way for now. Um, so what is the solution here if we want to be more active, but still engaged with technology. Yeah. Oh, um, well, I guess from the kind of tactical perspective, you can say, okay, well, I'm going to give myself a certain amount of scheduled time to interact with persuasive platforms. And that gives us a little bit of, um, you know, you can kind of hook in and get those dopamine rewards and the rest of it, but you're not going to spend three hours mindlessly scrolling when actually what you really want to do is curl up with a good book, but you don't feel like you have the bandwidth to do it. So you do the easy thing, right? It's kind of having the burger versus making a big meal that you're going to really enjoy. It's kind of junk food for the brain. Sure, it might be fun, but it's not necessarily nourishing. Um, so I think part of it is kind of creating containers for us to engage in these fun, but less nourishing ways. Um, and then I don't know. I mean, I actually think it's more about finding balance between the time spent with technology, interacting through technology, and time spent being out in the real world, which sounds like such an old fashioned thing to say, but you know, with the pandemic, it's been such a wake up call for so many of us realizing that technological interaction is not functionally equivalent in the words of the amazing uh, psychotherapist, Dr. Gillian Isaacs Russell. It's not functionally equivalent the experience we, ex we, we get through technology as the experience we get when we're physically present with others. You can't swap them out. They're not the same thing. Um, and so I think making space for both and not expecting technology to serve all our needs, because I don't think it can, uh, is probably a good place to start.
So I'm sensing that, you know, if you, your understanding of what a consumer is, is that it seems like it's a little bit of an impoverished notion that generalizes far too much. Uh, yeah. I mean, I'm putting words in your mouth here, but, you know, <laughs> you, you in your book, the way I sort of read it at a meta level, you are seeking for this like psychological underpinning of the consumer and you're not really finding it in in descriptions of consumers or in these generalized algorithms or anything that sort of targets a consumer. Because at the end of the day, we're talking about individual people yeah. and, and meaning that we find in various activities. So so what then? So, you know, we've talked a little bit about individual responses. What do you do? You you go into art and music and nature and forests. And I, I think we have a very similar inclination there. And I, we probably then, as individuals, spend more time doing those things. I spend an enormous amount of time gardening, for example, oh, going no. deep into like crazy flower routines. I'm now pre preparing my dahlia flowers, which, you know, have to be dug out of the of the ground every year, like, uh, you, you know, because they can't survive the whole winter. But anyway, what does that mean for companies that are trying to respond to these things and, and be not just targeting consumers, but trying to understand them and their, you know, our deepest needs, but still be really profitable, exciting businesses that sort of tap into deeper human trends. Sure. So I think it's about finding that balance between pleasure and purpose. So there's the kind of the, the hedonistic, pleasure-seeking, pain-avoiding, short-term hunt for an, a nice little high, whether that's from the food that you're going to get, the amazing outfit you've just bought, whatever is your pleasure. So there's that kind of desire for gratification, which is instant and can be bought. And then, well, not always bought, but in the context of consumption and consumerism that can be bought. And on the on the other hand, you have this deeper eudaimonic sense of wanting something that is meaningful, purposeful, that helps you to live up to your values, to become a fuller version of the person you aspire to be. And so then we're talking about the, the eudaimonic sense. And I think it is possible to layer in both for some organizations. So if you think about you know, going down to the pub with your friends and having a cheeky beer, that's hedonistic, it's fun. You're also going to get the needs of belonging met because you're with your mates. But if it's a beer that is um, created or crafted by an organization that is carbon negative, like BrewDog, for instance, they did a big campaign about this a short while ago, then you kind of not only having the hedonistic, you know, pleasure part, you're also getting the sense that, well, while I'm drinking this beer, I'm also helping to save the environment. And so it's, I know it's a bit of a trite example, but there are ways in which to meet these two needs. Um, and I think for other organizations, it's it's really about picking one or two things that you can do to move the needle uh, that's, you know, that's in your hand to hold, to be able to say, okay, well, maybe you can't be all things to all people. And I don't think we should expect companies to solve all of the world's problems all at once. But maybe it is within your power to, um, I don't know, have a green electric fleet of vehicles to do your deliveries instead of using fossil fuel based vehicles or something like this. I think asking that question, what can we do to meet deeper needs? And then there's another lens that I think is useful to think about. So it's kind of the, the self-determination lens. So looking at how to respect people's autonomy and agency, how to empower them with the skills or competencies to achieve their desirable goals in life. And then the relatedness piece around belonging, how do you craft that? Um, and so if you look at brands that are really getting this right, they tend to be able to offer the purpose element and also the autonomous competence relatedness piece as well. So it's, um, 
Yeah. That's that's super interesting. I, I wanted to bring up something that I think I think is controversial. I don't know. It's hard to know <laughs> these days if anything really is controversial. But anyway, we, we, we talked, you know, at the surface a little bit about art. And one of the things that people typically think about with art is that it doesn't have either they think that it people say, you know, it doesn't have an ul- uh, ulterior purpose. So mm-hmm. per definition, perhaps it is, you know, uh, a monaic, it is something pure and, and, and it is gratifying for, for, because you can, can imagine things and it is in the realm of creativity, both for the receiver of it and, and the kind of digester of what has been produced mm-hmm. and, and for the creator, the artist. But you and I had this conversation earlier and I wanted to bring uh, that up again, that, in many ways, the institution of art is no longer able to change the world in and of itself. How, how is that <laughs> possible? So if you think about contemporary art, just to, you know, let's not say Oof. art, because the art world, I think, arguably, is still changing things and, and is really having profound effects. But there's mm. the niche of sort of like contemporary art, whatever is at the moment considered, you know, this is, you know, really, really state-of-the-art art. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I have some things. That's to not really speaking. Sir, let, let's just speak about you and I. It's not speaking much to me. And you told me earlier it doesn't speak to you either. Yeah. Now, what are we to make of that? So this is. I'm sure this is going to ruffle some feathers. And um, well, it is as it is. But I am really not a massive fan of, generally speaking, the offering that contemporary art is putting out into the world. It, it takes a lot to convince me of the the deep value that could be offered through contemporary art. There are examples of amazing contemporary art that move people. And I think maybe that's the key. Sorry, go ahead. No, I was just saying, I have also seen that. So I I think this is not a blanket statement that Mm -hmm. anything that is created in the last uh, 15, 20 years is not great. And I have individual friends who are artists and and a lot of them are creating interesting things that I I think is worth engaging with. But I guess I, I was more trying to ask you at a sort of systemic level, there have been times in human history where uh, artists have been more and less creative. I think that's fairly established. But in those creative periods, art was indeed expressing something Mm. essential about that time period, or indeed something essential that transcends time. Mm. I personally, perhaps, I'm not deep enough steeped (laughs) in this environment, but I have not seen much of that for a very long time. So that's an interesting perspective, because I think one of the things that comes up in discussion and debate, and this is all up for grabs, I mean, these are just, you know, opinions that I hold. One of the things that comes up in debate with my artist friends frequently, bearing in mind they're all of a more like realist art persuasion, so more traditional methods of oil painting and and such, at least in terms of training, is that art often reflects the prevailing values or conflicts or struggles of the time in which it's produced, so that it has a cultural... um, context to it and as such if you think about contemporary art and when I think of contemporary art I'm not necessarily talking about contemporary realist art which has more of a traditional root but the stuff which is the mainstay of art um, what can we learn about what it tells us about society and I think some of the things that I see when I look at contemporary art is that we hold up on a pedestal concepts more highly than we hold aesthetic pleasure, than we hold emotional content or mm, sensual connection with. Uh, And there are obviously pieces that are exceptions to this, but I see the contemporary art that is being produced now 
as quite atomized, quite conceptual. A lot of it doesn't require, and this is not necessarily a value judgment, but a lot of it doesn't require you to study for seven years honing a craft or a skill to be able to do extraordinary metalwork or to be able to do extraordinary uh, painting or drawing or whatever it might be, or sculpting. And so I think there is there is something in that, like, in terms of what it reflects back to me about society now, we we want the quick fix. We value the ideas. We value the the virtual above the physical, the sensual, the kind of the corporal. Um, and our ideas about beauty and about connection and about what it is to be desirable. So much of that is fetishized and packaged into this very limited idea of of what we should be aiming for, whether it's kind of like the flawless, youthful. Um, I don't know, like photoshopped image of a young cellulite free, hair free individual, whatever, you know, is the fancy of the time. It's, I don't know, it just, we're, we're lacking what I would hope to be a sense of depth that connects us through the ages. Does it, does it make any sense what I'm saying here? Yeah, it makes <laughs> a lot of sense. And I actually want to take it somewhat further and see if I am completely out of whack with this thought. I wonder if the conceptual artists that you are referring to here are actually not deep enough into tech and conceptualization of contemporary society. It's not that they are exploring the wrong area. It is for me that they are not conceptual enough. In other words, video art with like just sort of like video installations. For me, that doesn't do it because you're missing the point. It's not the medium of video itself that is a, that has a conceptual richness. It yeah. is what that does. Yeah. And the fact that, you know, I would have expected an artist to truly understand what it is about not the medium of video or television itself or whatever it is, you know, some sort of latest visual expressive sort of uh, concept. It is what that technology deeply is doing to us. And I want to see art that has gone 10, 15, 20 years into the future of that technology mm. and is telling us something about us going in the wrong direction, not just sort of illustrating some, some sort of concept that is just, you know, two years later, you're like, ah, oh, that was fun. But, you know, this, this, you know, we have superseded that technology now. In other words, mm. I think some of the artists because art has always been steeped in technology, mm. but yeah. in in the kind of the the art that we would consider timeless, artists were able to transcend the <clears throat> current generation. I mean, this again is just yeah. my opinion. They were able to, <clears throat> excuse me, transform the current technology and build on it mm. creatively, so that mm. even if a certain technique of oil painting is today not super advanced they transcended it by such a high degree that you can still appreciate what they did, even though yeah. photorealism didn't exist in the 16th century. Mm. You can still appreciate that what they did was essentially a version of preeminent photography mm -hmm. that was staggering at the time, but it is still staggering today because it doesn't take a leap of faith to understand not only that at you know in the 16th century, these portraits were immeasurably advanced yeah, yeah but they are still advanced yeah and also just like as a side note if you've ever gone to like and it could be the Prado Museum in Madrid or it could be the National Gallery in the UK you go and see some of these 1500 1400 paintings 
I challenge anyone to be able to replicate that. It's really fucking hard work. Sorry, my last square. <laughs> yeah. No, well, you know, I'll <laughs> you give you one. I'll give you one. It's really hard. Like the technique required to be able to actualize these images is it's just it's it requires years of dedicated practice. And so I think, you know, when we're thinking about envisioning the future or like old forms of art being transcendent of their existing, what would have been their current culture and context, um, all of these things, what they have, these people and the transcending elements of their work or practice, all they have in common, I think, is a vision, a vision of something they want to create at some level to, to be able to put some reflection about the world in there or some sense of truth about what it is to be in existence or some sort of possibility of what we could move towards. I mean, one of my favorite, favorite paintings, because it's just so wild, is Hieronymus, Hieronymus Bosch's Garden of Delights. It's absolutely psychedelic. That would be, you know, in a museum today. And if you didn't know who had painted it and when, you'd think it was contemporary art. Um, and that's an example, perhaps, of one that does have a, a, a sort of series of layered messages that most of us could read something into and I think to the other point about envisioning the future and perhaps the warnings that art can bring us about the future I see a huge amount of that richness coming up in literature so a lot of the scientific um, scientific fiction science fiction literature a lot of the um, what they call it cli-fi like climate fiction as well all of these books are forms of artistic expression that I think fall under that category that are maybe fulfilling um, a role that modern visual artists en masse are not being able to fulfill at this moment in time. I don't know. It's, yeah. But are there are there companies, just to take it back to sort of like pro contemporary product design, and I, I certainly don't want this to just become another uh, discussion about Apple, but, you know, famously they, of course, do... Um, delight the consumer or at least for some 10 15 years they have delighted consumers yeah. uh for a while by product design that kind of speaks to us directly yeah. and it has a function and it has a simplicity and it has certain certain other elements is that what a business has to aspire to then essentially becoming art in that sense, like designing your products so that you fascinate the consumer by having created something that is so elegant or, and, and at the same time has these functions mm. that you truly are impressed by what you're using. And you're, you're saying, well, this actually does take talent and it takes mm -hmm. skill. And whether it's created by algorithms or it's a physical product, or in this case, when it's a morphing of, of the software and the hardware into one thing that you then end up, um, I mean, we use it yeah. in our everyday life for almost everything. It becomes this like totem. It becomes this like symbolic thing that we organize our entire lives around. But that's just one example. And, you know, the, the cell phone will go through all these iterations and, and maybe there is a next thing there. But is that, is that then a, a more fruitful way of thinking about an authentic kind of relationship with a consumer? So that should, should every company try to aspire to, to do something enormously creative uh, in order to sort of tap into something psychological, because I think there is a psychological level to 
to the Mac movement that turned yeah. into Apple, that turned into the Apple devotional sort of <laughs> community that there is around there. It's a religion. Yeah. I think... I think people find beauty in different ways. I think, so for instance, if I think about the people who are friends of mine who are developers who love their PCs because there's a beauty to being able to reconfigure things in a way that it serves the function that you want it to serve. So it's more about beauty and function as opposed to beauty and form. You know, that's that's also arguably um, a fulfillment of beauty that people seek and they're then gratified by. So I think there's there's also a wider question, which is what is beauty and what is artistic and what is creative and how do we relate to that? Um, that being said, one of my favorite periods of time in terms of function and form being beautiful dance partners is kind of the Victorian era when you go into any old train station in London, for instance, you go into Paddington or King's Cross, these places just felt fill me with joy because they're just extraordinarily beautifully designed. Every single element has a function. And part of that function, I think, is to celebrate the creativity of um, human ingenuity and aestheticism. So I think not all companies have to go down the, the aesthetically beautiful route, but I do think that building beauty and pleasure into functional or utilitarian objects is a way to make them much more psychologically engaging, much more emotionally resonant and, um, yeah, something that people want to in engage with more, use more, connect with more. Natalie, a lot of people call you the web psychologist, mm. Yet, and you write about psychology and you have this in, innate sort of awareness of psychology. Where, where, do you, where, where did that come from? <laughs> well, I think two things. I mean, I did do a psych degree um, back in the day, and um, you know, I was looking for doing further education, but there just wasn't any course that that looked into things like UX or, you know, computer science as a computer science uh, building on the campus, but it was very, very far removed from the human sciences. And that's kind of actually why I ended up writing the first book. So maybe that was a good thing. Um, but I think in terms of like a deeper sense of why I'm interested in psychology is because we view everything through the lens of human experience. And if we can better understand that lens, then maybe we can get a better sense of, you know, how to live, why we're here, how to find fulfillment, how to relate to other people better, how to integrate things that maybe we found difficult in life. It's it's that kind of, how do you really understand yourself and others so that you can create um, maybe a more beautiful and meaningful existence? I think that's kind of at the heart of my search. <laughs> I just keep yielding like other questions. I don't feel like I have that many answers, but maybe it's the searching that's the important thing. So, so then in the spirit of, of the search, um, if you think about the next decade, right? So that that's something uh, we try to do on on this podcast. And as a futurist, you are almost always asked by your clients to certainly look a little bit into the future, mm -hmm. whether that just means kind of the next season, you know, in in, in clothes, or or the next uh, kind of two three years, because you're you're designing something, or it truly is, you know, the more long term future, the decade, and uh, even longer. What do you see happening in this realm that we've been sort of dancing around, sort of like uh, creating true, engaging products that speak to the psychology of human beings? Where, where do you see that process going? Are there any promising trends or nuggets of forces that you see operating here? Or 
Um, you said you were a little skeptical of the metaverse, but you're sort of also fascinated by it. I mean, is, is technology helping us here? Is, is this timelessness of psychology helping us out? Do you see anything? Um, do you see this going in a certain direction? So I kind of want to zoom out from just the tech piece, because I think the tech piece is going through some serious growing pains right now. You know, you've got um, the revelations, well, they're not a revelation to most of us, but nominally the revelations of Instagram and Facebook's uh, apps and their effects on on young women in particular, but the mental health of people. So we're, we're having, we're in the process of a bit of a shakeup, I think, that has been a long time coming and probably will take a while to shake out. Um, so more broadly than this, I mean, from the tech perspective, we've got a lot more AI and AR and VR coming. There's going to be a lot more technology that enters into our lives that maybe we're not so aware of now that are going to happen quite quickly. So I know that Apple, for instance, have got some interesting things in the pipeline that they're going to probably announce in the next six months. Like There's a whole tech automation piece. But then there's also the whole piece around if we don't fix our systems and find more regenerative ways to live is not going to make a difference how many VR headsets we have if we don't have a planet to live on and the crops of Durham wheat in Canada are failing and therefore the price of pasta is going up and no one can eat in vast parts of it. Like these sorts of things. I think my my sense is that we need to take a much more integrated holistic view of what is it that we're trying to achieve and how can we um, enlist the service of all the different tools and technologies available to us to make sure that we are staving off the worst consequences of the damage that we've caused and envisioning a positive future, which is where the art and the music and the theatre and literature comes in. And the technology to be able to do that, you know, if you think about things like um, electric vehicles or you think about climb works and carbon capture uh, or photovoltaic technology, which is now extraordinarily advanced, all of these different things have to pull together but it also requires social and political will. Um, and we know that from a social perspective, things are very fractured right now. There's a lot of tribalism, a lot of old models creaking and groaning under the strain of, of uncertainty, ambiguity, people feeling quite disconnected and quite afraid. And so I think it's going to be quite a turbulent time, um, which is why I think conversations like this are probably very important and why finding ways to navigate through this period with a clear vision about the world that you want to inhabit means that then you can make consumer choices or behavioral choices that enable that to become more of a possibility. Um, yeah. So yeah, turbulence ahead, I think. It's a strange word to end on, but uh, turbulence ahead, I think you, I fear you might be right. Um, but turbulence hopefully can also be uh, liberating, right? In in art, yeah, it uh, has been liberating, and in in many parts of of the human experience, turbulence yeah. can can yield positive results. And we need it to. I mean, we have we are we are capable as a species of so much more than we are living up to right now. Um, and I fervently believe that, and I see evidence for this. Uh, and so I think that this is this is a wake up call to just become better <laughs> let's go for the best version of humanity that we can go for because there's so much possibility now's the time well i certainly understand now more about the title of your book because business unusual i think it's not just business that's going to become somewhat unusual we are in unusual <laughs> times which i guess is also exciting times it's it's not like uh there's there's change around every corner right yeah and yeah it's so, amazing oh, everything yeah <laughs> 
Well, thank you so much for exploring this uh, with me and uh, congratulations on your book and your art or artistic journey. <laughs> and um, well, I look forward to, to staying in touch. Thank you. And thanks for brilliant questions and the thoughtful uh, directions in which we've gone into conversation. It's just been a delight. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. You have just listened to an interview with author Natalie Nahai on the Futurized podcast, hosted by futurist and author Trun Arne Unheim. If you are interested in Tron's products and services, feel free to check out futurized.org slash store where you can book a keynote speech, become a sponsor or partner, request a podcast swap, or buy a few of Tron's books such as Health Tech, Future Tech, Pandemic Aftermath, Disruption Games, or Leadership from Below. In this conversation, we talked about Natalie's recent book, Business Unusual, Values, Uncertainty, and the Psychology of Brand Resilience. My takeaway is that big tech and its products and solutions are so purpose-driven that it threatens to stifle our creativity. We need to consider the future of creative boredom to counter this effect. Reconnecting deeply with the natural world is a remedy. This takes effort, but if we can change, it cannot just be an individual strategy, it must be a collective effort. Thanks for listening. If you liked the show, subscribe at futurize.org or in your preferred podcast player and rate us with five stars. If you like this topic, you may enjoy other episodes of Futurized, such as episode 129, How Executives Handle Crisis, episode 147, Health Tech Reboot, or episode 108, Play Uncertainty and Growth. Hopefully you'll find something awesome in these or in other episodes, and if so, do let us know by messaging us. We would love to share your thoughts with other listeners. Futurized is created in association with Yegi, the Insight Network. Uh, Yegi lets clients create multidisciplinary teams consisting of subject matter experts, academics, consultants, data scientists, and generalists. Yegi services include speeches, briefings, seminars, reports, and ongoing monitoring, and you can find Yegi at yegi.org. Please share this show with those you care about. To find us on social media is easy. We are Futurized on LinkedIn and YouTube and Futurized 2 on Instagram and Twitter. See you next time. Futurized. Conversations that matter.